Well, we're going to be in the last half of chapter 2 today, so I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn there. Bless you. Some of you know the story of my first cross-country skiing trip with my father-in-law. In fact, I was just telling some of the folks at our fellowship last night around, or not last night, but last week around the fire, and it was, it's hard to believe it was almost 35 years ago, but we were on an extensive across-the-mountains trip planning time that was a tradition in my wife's family. She was the only girl, and they were all guys going out, and so when we were, first got married, it was like they booted her out <laughs> of the group which was sad for her, and of course, uh, Kevin was, was on his way, so she couldn't go anyway, but it was a sad thing where they said, come and you know, be in Wendy's place, and, and we were all going to go as guys up into the mountains uh, over in the Fresno area, so just over in Sequoia, so, or Kings Canyon, or whatever that is. There's, a, there's some big mountains back there. And they were always going about 10 miles in cross-country skiing. And I do remember my father-in-law saying, we need to go out and practice. And I told him, you know, I've been downhill skiing for 10 years and shouldn't have too much difficulty on cross-country skis. And he said, well, you'd better practice because there's a big difference between carrying a 50-pound backpack on your back and having these loose uh, booted skis where you can easily have weight shift and your ankle turn a little bit and constantly fall. And so I, I humored him and had him take me up to, to practice. And I should have known then that I was in trouble. And there's a whole other story about what actually happened on that, that big trip. But when I went with my father-in-law, you know, we went up by Kirkwood to go ski, and very quickly I found myself up to my armpits buried in snow, uh, because what I had done is I got so tired of falling over that I stepped out of my skis, and if you have been in cross-country skiing environments before where it's, it's unbroken snow, you, can, you sink down immediately down. Uh, to my armpits. In fact, my skis caught me, uh, is what happened. So I'm there saying, help! Of course, my father-in-law had skied on ahead. He had gotten tired of waiting for me. Uh, it took him 10, 15 minutes to come back, and I was still there. <laughs> and in, in true, true fashion, and, and Wendy has other stories about growing up and, and her no-nonsense dad, he just came over, and he's looking down at me, and I'm looking up at him from the snow, and he says, I told you not to take off your skis. I guess you'll take my warning more seriously next time. So that was that, was that whole, whole exchange. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, I wanted to be able to imitate my father-in-law because he glided so easily across the snow. And and frankly, the experience made it clear that I was not ready for this big event that was going to occur in a few weeks going through the mountains there east of Fresno. He had even forged this path before me. He had broken the snow for me, and he just said, follow in my tracks. But if it had not been for his help, I'd still be buried there, right, in the snow. Well, when I look at Scripture, 
And we'll be here at Romans 2 in just a second. But when I look at Scripture, I see an important command by Jesus in Matthew 5.48. When he says, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be perfect. Our God walks before us and he forges a path in holiness and righteousness and there is no part of sin or evil in him. And I see that somewhat like my father-in-law's ease with which he was breaking that trail in front of me and yet when we try on our own to walk behind God, what happens? We can't. For we are sinful. In fact, we're buried in snow from the moment we're born. And we can't follow God on our own. And just as my father-in-law had to come back to pick me up from where I was stuck, so God had to regenerate us while we were dead in sin. And that is the gospel message. It's also the type of help we need, as has been implied over and over again in Romans chapter 2 so far as As we've learned back in chapter 1, the pagans suppress the clearly visible fact that God exists. And the self-righteous, hypocritical uh, religious leaders in particular, but anybody really who fits that description there in chapter 2, they judge the pagan of chapter 1 when they do the same things. And it seems hopeless. And yet, while we were dead, Christ came and died for us to give us life. So keep that in mind as we look closely today at our morning's passage. If you wouldn't mind standing as we read the first portion of Romans 2, 17 through 29. Paul says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolishness of the foolish, a teacher of children having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Let's stop there for now. and We'll pick up the last five verses a little later. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and, and for all that you've done for us. Thank you for the insight even into our own lives in these chapters. Lord, for we find ourselves either in chapter 1 or chapter 2 often. And so I pray that you would instruct us, teach us from your word, prepare us to uh, receive your admonition and instruction for change. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you think about the descriptions that we read in these first few verses, you know, a guide to the blind, the light to those who are in darkness. Do you think about any other passages of Scripture? I think of Isaiah 9, 2, for example, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And then Luke 4.18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, 
to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Who was a light in the darkness and who was a guide for the blind? It was Jesus. He was a guide and a light. And what did the Pharisees think they were? They thought they were in the same role as Jesus. The Pharisees thought that they were like God. And just like I didn't think I needed any help from my father-in-law, the Pharisees didn't think they needed any help from the Lord. And so Paul, in our passage today, makes the point again, just as he did in the first half of the chapter that we looked at last week, the self-righteous Israelites hypocritically broke the same commands they gave to others. And here he notes that not only does the hypocritical righteous, self-righteous person judge others when they do the same things, but they actually profess to know the Bible and to know God's will. And I, when you think about that, you, you go, well, you had, you had God's word right in front of you. And if you think about something like Genesis 15, for example, and in these five verses here, they had this passage. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to me, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, number the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to them, So shall your offspring be. You may be saying, Well, why pick this passage? Well, what's happening here is God called Abram out of Mesopotamia, He brought him to Israel. He told him that he would make of him a nation set apart to the Lord. That's the very promise that the Pharisees placed their entire faith in. And they were a part of that nation that God had set apart for himself through Abraham. And verse 6 says that Abram believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. And then we see these next verses. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. He brought him all these things, cut them in half, laid each half over against each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon him. And Behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. There will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. So we have here the fact that God agreed to give Abram a sign that this promise would be fulfilled. And that sign was in the form of this ancient ritual called the covenant ceremony. And 
That ceremony is mentioned many times in the Bible. We've talked about it many times here at the church. You know that the animals were divided in two. These halves placed on either side of a path. And the parties to this covenant walked between the two rows. And as they walked between these torn bodies, they took a serious vow. In effect, they said, if we break our covenant with each other, may we be like these animals. Torn apart. And that's a serious commitment. And it's a serious consequence to breaking your word in this, in this covenant relationship. And it's no wonder that Abram had a horror come upon him as he fell asleep that night. I believe he probably was terrified by the reality of his responsibility in making a covenant with not just the local leader of the land, but with God. He knew what was symbolized in, in these things. I've got a covenant to keep up my side of the bargain. I've got a covenant to be perfect and to walk in righteousness or be like these animals about to swear to his own destruction. And here he is, a 99-year-old man, right? But God surprised him during the night because if you read that last verse again, when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, the smoking fire pot and a flaming torch that passed between the pieces. You remember how God led the Israelites, often symbolized by what? Pillar of cloud or pillar of fire. This smoking torch that passes between the pieces is a representative of God himself walking through the pieces. But Abraham standing off to the side watching God do the walking. And like we've talked about before, and it's always important to be reminded of this fact, God does the committing by himself. He swears a covenant curse, though, upon himself. He says, in effect, if I do not keep my promise to you, Abram, may I be torn into pieces as these animals have been. And on threat of his own destruction, God promises that his power will set Abram apart. And this is why we so often call this this covenant of grace, this this treaty, this promise, this commitment by God, because it is based completely upon his initiative, calling Abram out of Mesopotamia, completely upon his ability, his power to work and will in Abram and his descendants, and it is upon his responsibility to make sure it takes place. And Abram learned an essential lesson that day. To fulfill God's purposes, he had to take his eyes off of his own lack of ability and trust completely in God's power and provision. Only God has the ability to enable us to become the blameless, perfect people that he commands us to be. And that's why I said the Pharisees had that passage in front of them. They had the story of the very person that was the start of the nation that they were so proud to be a part of. And yet, the the person that they claim as the first father 
of the patriarchs doesn't pass through in the covenant ceremony. Now go back to what I quoted from Jesus earlier. You remember? It says, be perfect. How are we going to do that? Well, the same way as Abraham, through God's gracious provision. The Israelites in Paul's day should have understood that same thing. They didn't understand that their own righteousness was not sufficient. They professed to know the word of God. But they were memorizing the passages, I think, that so often spoke against their enemies. And we do the same things, friends. Sin corrupts us to make us think that we fulfill God's promises Commands on our own strength, apart from him. We're thankful for what he's going to do. You know, he's going to judge the wicked, sinful. We don't consider ourselves in that group. And yet we have even more information than they did in Paul's time. We have the full, complete word of God. Not just the Old Testament. We have the Old Testament. We have the New Testament. We are post Christ, post the resurrection. We have 2,000 years of church history. We have no excuse. God passed before Abram that night, it's true, but we know that God became flesh, tabernacled among us, passed before humanity for 33 years in the incarnation. He performed a type of covenant ceremony, if you will, on the cross when he died for our sins because he died. We did not. We could not. And just as God alone passed through the pieces, so Jesus alone bore the penalty of sin on our behalf. And the right response of those in that first half of chapter 2 that we read last week should have been humility and obedience. It should have been listening to Paul and saying, you're right, we have been hypocritical. We've lacked humility. We need a Savior as much as the pagans do. And I can't believe that we've been so proud in thinking that everything was just automatically exempt for us just because we were born from Abraham. That's why they could never truly be lights in the darkness or guides to the blind. They were as lost and as blind as everyone else. And that's why Jesus said, you are making the people that are following you as you stumble in the darkness in your self-righteous hypocrisy, you are making them twice the children of the devil in what you're doing. Now on an intellectual level, we probably have very little problem with these things. We acknowledge with our words that Jesus died for us and that we're sinners. But don't we have a hard time translating that into daily practice? We think about our efforts to raise our children and the measure of how much we rely upon God becomes evident when we see how little we went to God in prayer this week with regard to our kids or our grandchildren. Are we daily seeking the help of the only one who can save them. We work diligently to to raise our kids. We discipline them. We pay large sums of money for their education. We take them to church every Sunday. And while those activities are important, they are useless, right? Unless God empowers them 
to benefit our children. Our daily practices reveal often that we rely too much on our own strength and not enough on the Lord. And the same is true of everything else that we do in our lives. What priorities do we exhibit in our jobs? We plan and we work, struggle, do that over again. We turn to God typically when? In the moments of crisis. We're in the risk of losing our job. When we have the pay cuts, when the economy is bad, or we've made a bad decision or done something wrong, or the company's downside, whatever it is, Hard work is vital, but as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, it is vain and meaningless if it is not guided by the right priorities. Are you seeking God daily in your work? Rejoicing always, striving with excellence for the glory of God. Well, in helping us understand the rest of Romans 2, I want to show you something else that Abram learned back in Genesis. This is in Genesis 17. Since when he was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me, be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. There's that promise again, but also the command again, be perfect, be blameless. And Abram knew that he hadn't. And unlike those in Romans 2, he knew his sinfulness. He had lied to Pharaoh's men in Egypt. He had left Israel during that famine Instead of trusting God, he'd been impatient and had a child, Ishmael, with his wife's mistress, Hagar. Abram recognized the gravity of his sin. And that's why we're told in verse 3 that he fell on his face. Fell on his face before God. Be perfect, be blameless. As soon as God said that, right? It had to have been. I mean, look at all that baggage that happened just since he had been called from Mesopotamia. Well, to deal with that sin, God told Abram two important things. He first reminds him of the promise that we saw back in Genesis 15. You can see it there. My covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. I've already gone through and proven it to you, right? We read that. I'll make you a multitude of nations. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. Kings shall come from you and He goes on to say, these things I will give to you and your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. I will be their God. But then starting at verse 9, God tells Abraham something else that is so, so important. Instead of reminding him simply about what he is going to do for Abram, God tells and turns to Abraham's responsibility. As for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout your generations. And again, does that command contradict the promise? It does not. And we've got to get that straight, friends. Even though God makes a one-sided promise to Abraham when he walks between the pieces, even though God says, you reaching that goal is going to depend upon my grace and my initiative and my responsibility and my power, our relationship does not change. And so God simply reminds Abraham of a truth that may have faded from his memory. I don't know what happened post the covenantal ceremony. I don't know if Abraham in any way became a little 
sometimes to the point that, that we do in, as, as Christian believers where we become complacent, too confident. But God reminds him the responsibility remains. Faithfulness is still required of all God's creation. Obedience, love, perfection, responsibility, holiness. And when God says, like back in chapter 12 of Genesis, when he says, leave your country, Abram, he didn't say please, right? He expected Abram to obey. And he does the same thing with us. We cannot forget that God expects us to be perfect as God is perfect. We, can, we must acknowledge, accept the gracious promises of God, but then we must live in obedience. And to demonstrate how serious that matter was for Abraham, God orders him to bring out the knife again. And this time it's not to cut animals, this time it is to cut something else. As verses 10 through 11 say, This is my covenant which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. In the flesh of your foreskins it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And so in Genesis 15, God places himself, so to speak, under the knife, or at least the threat of the knife. And now in Genesis 17, God commands Abraham and his descendants to go under the knife. And you can see... Can't you that this is like another version of a covenant ceremony? It's at least symbolic of one, of what took place. It calls to mind that ritual of Genesis 15. And so Abraham and his descendants are saying, every time they did that, we're a part of that original promise that God made in that that covenantal ceremony in, in committing himself to us, we are committing ourselves to God. And is it any wonder then that God wanted no part with those Israelites who were unwilling to undergo circumcision? Even someone like Moses. When Moses hasn't circumcised his child, you know, God says, no, you will. Because by not doing that, you're stating by your actions that you are not a part of this covenant that I have made with Abraham. Well, the second thing that circumcision symbolized was sinfulness and the salvation of God. This idea of cutting away the flesh was like cutting away a part of them, a part that they treated as representing the sin nature. And so God has graciously set his people apart and forgiven them their sin. So thank you. That was a lengthy time in the Old Testament But it was important to helping us understand the rest of Romans 2 because Romans 2 has a context. And that was that Genesis section. And so as we look at these final verses in Romans 2, starting with verse 25, we see circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So the Israelites remembered the first meaning of circumcision. They were set apart as God's chosen people. 
They believed almost superstitiously, actually, that circumcision actually secured their salvation. One rabbi wrote, circumcised men do not descend into hell. And another wrote, circumcision will deliver Israel from hell. Well, not quite. Paul says, circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So even though it was significant, it was not a life insurance policy, right? Against God's wrath. David Gregg's often commented during communion or during a baptism that his wedding ring is a reminder of the vows that he spoke to Karen on their wedding day. And that ring is a symbol of their love, but it is not the substance or the core of it or the source of it. And when they struggle, David doesn't rub it for good luck or pray to it, even though he, Dave can testify to this, he is constantly playing around with it at the dinner table at our session meetings. Ultimately, that ring is only a symbol, right? But as David has spoken before in those illustrations, he says, what if I try to make the ring more than a symbol? What if I decided to be abusive and unloving toward Karen? Suppose I started refusing to care for her needs, and and Karen said to me, you don't want to be my husband. And, And if he responded, well, how dare you talk to me or challenge me and my love, look at this ring. I haven't taken it off for over 20 years. How long has it been married? Almost 30 years? I haven't taken it off this whole time. I may not treat you well, but I wear this. Do you really think that Karen's response would be, oh yeah, I forgot. You have worn the ring, sweetheart, and made a tremendous sacrifice in doing that. Of course she wouldn't say that. And why is that? It is because apart from the love that it symbolizes, the ring means nothing. The symbol represents love and commitment, but it is not love and commitment. And so Paul's response is direct and clear to those who had a false confidence in circumcision. They're saying, Circumcision means something. It is not salvation. Right? It is not security. It means something if you obey God. A wedding ring is significant if you truly love and remain committed to your spouse. Well, Paul's not denying that circumcision sealed God's covenant with the nation of Israel. But just because you're circumcised, know that it will end up as meaningless as a wedding ring on an adulterer's finger if you do not live blameless and perfect before God. And then comes verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Now that would have shocked their Jewish readers. 
Suddenly the role is reversed. The Israelite in the first part of chapter 2 says in critical judgment of the pagan from chapter 1, you will be judged by God. But now Paul is saying to them, brothers, there are some uncircumcised pagans that are going to come to know the Lord. They're going to acknowledge the truth that exists from the Invisible attributes of God are fully displayed in the things that he has made. For creation has made them known to him. And and God is going to be merciful and he's going to move in their hearts and call them to himself. And these uncircumcised pagans who are going to in faith come for God in grace to his throne are going to sit there in judgment of you, circumcised Israelites who have rejected Christ. And not only that, even though you're circumcised because you've broken the law and not trusted Christ the Savior, you are not a true child of Abraham. Wow. Because what is Paul saying here? Your spiritual identity is determined by your heart condition. It is not by what you look like on the outside or even by your personal disciplines. I want you to hear that this morning. Because you might have gotten lost in some of the long quotes from the Old Testament, but I want you to hear that very clearly. Our spiritual identity, your spiritual identity, is determined by your heart condition, not by what you look like on the outside or even by your personal disciplines. And I keep saying that month after month, but carrying a Bible, affirming the creeds, standing against all the bad trends in our society... Going to church on Sundays, calling ourselves Christians, they're all fine, but if we are spiritually dead, it is all vanity, it is all meaningless. Circumcision symbolized salvation, but it did not and could not impart or equal salvation. The same is true of baptism, the same is true of reading your Bibles, the same is true of everything. It is a critical mistake to exalt the symbol. That's what the Israelites did in Romans chapter 2. And then his final conclusion is set out in verses 28 and 29. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and the circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So being a child of God is not something outward and visible, but it is inward, it is invisible, it is about the heart, not the flesh. It is affected by the spirit, Not the law, it wins the approval of God, not of man. And one of the dangers of religion, especially Christianity in America, is that we are so comfortable with what is visible and outward and superficial, but what matters to God is what only he can accomplish through the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What a great and wonderful promise and and reality that is that Christ has become our circumcision. He 
has become our righteousness. In the final scene of the Pilgrim's Progress, some of you were here many, many years ago. We went through that, through uh, what we were doing at that time, disciple makers in the afternoon, watching a portion of Pilgrim's Progress and talking about what was being said. In that story, Christian and Hopeful, after all their struggles and their long journey from the city of destruction, finally cross the river and enter into the celestial city and their home in heaven. But there was a man that was following them. You may remember the story. His name is Ignorance. And he's helped across the river by Mr. Vain Hope. And, and both expect to get into the city. And it's certainly ignorance because he believes he has led a morally good life. And at the gate of heaven, when ignorance can produce no evidence that he belongs to Jesus, the angels banish him. And Bunyan writes, I saw, and listen to this conclusion, I saw that there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven. This church, CVP, just like many, many other churches, brings all of us weekly up to the gates of heaven. That's why we're here to to listen to the gospel, to hear the truth. There's a way to hell even from here. If anyone vainly and ignorantly hopes, like the Israelite of Romans 2, that the gates of heaven will open for those whose hope is in their own works rather than Jesus Christ, they will be sadly disappointed. As one author has said, it is not a question of whether you've been baptized, galvanized, or pasteurized. The only sure foundation for salvation is to be circumcised by Jesus Christ. The one who circumcises hearts through his redeeming grace. Well, true salvation is a matter of the heart. As 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Remember those things. When it's my turn to stand before God in that final judgment, I want God to be able to say, Steve Walker, that man is my child. There's no question about him. The Holy Spirit fills his being. Welcome him in. Bring him into his inheritance. He has my praise. And isn't that what you want God to say about you? How then can we settle for anything less than an all-out, open-hearted seeking of God in all of our lives? So friends, get rid of any superficial reliance upon your works, your self-righteousness, any pride, any tendency to be critical and judgmental towards others. What is the condition of your heart? Seek God, go to him, let all of that go, and know that your true righteousness is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the promise of new life, not because we were perfect through our constant working to please you in our own strength, 
But Lord, we are given life because Jesus did all that was required under your law and then willingly died in our place to take the penalty because we did not. There's no place for pride in that, Lord. So I pray that we would learn what those in chapter 2 of Romans did not. And that is that you are the only sufficient way. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And no one will get into heaven but through the righteousness of your Son. May that be constantly on our minds. And may it impact in turn the way we think of ourselves and the way we think of other people. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.